Series 5 was recorded in March 2021 over the internet. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to a special series of the Rural Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt of Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. For 65 years, the Rural Court Theatre in London has led the world in the production of new plays and the discovery and championing of new playwrights. The Stucker Market of the Theatre Treffen is an annual gathering of new writers and theatre makers. Every year since 1978, writers are chosen by Stucker Market jurors from hundreds of applications to visit Berlin and perform, talk about and celebrate their work. With the 2019 Stuckermark, the competition was launched for the first time worldwide. In this short series of podcasts, the Royal Court Theatre and the Stuckermark collaborate for the first time. This year, as Berlin, like the rest of the world, manages the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, the six writers whose work has been chosen will be discussing their work in this special series of five hour-long online conversations. Over the course of the last decade, Jude Christian has established herself as one of the most exciting directors, dramaturgs and theatre makers in British theatre. She's directed at most of the major theatres in London, staging new plays at the Royal Court Theatre and The Gate, and she's reimagined Shakespeare's Othello and Macbeth at the Lyric Hammersmith. She's worked as a dramaturg at The Globe on the banks of the Thames and written and directed Dick Whittington, a raucous and magnificent panto, that peculiar Christmas extension of the popular music hall cabaret that defines the theatrical experience in the United Kingdom and entirely baffles the rest of the world. She was made Associate Director of Home in Manchester at the end of the last decade. I worked with her on the 2017 production of Chekhov's The Seagull at the Lyric Hammersmith, where she was Associate Director. She was a collaborator of rigour, intelligence and imagination with a searing sense of truth. Over the course of the last decade, she's written and developed and performed a quite shattering and unique piece of theatre. Nanjing dramatises her own exploration of her own history. It's a moving portrayal of her discovery in her 20s of the atrocities that are, in England, often described as the rape of Nanking, the atrocities at Nanjing that were carried out against the Chinese people of her grandparents' generation. It is also a play about the last decade and how in that decade the world's sense of its own history has on occasion dug its heels into notions of simplicity when what was maybe needed was a human acceptance of contradiction. It is a play about the brutality of war in the last century that crystallises into a felt and powerful creed for the urgent need for peace as we embark on our third baffling decade of this one. She performs the piece herself with poise and clarity. It is one of the judges' choices for this year's Stuckmark. Jude Christian, welcome to the Royal Court Playwrights Podcast. And welcome to the Stuckmark as well, mate. Nice to virtually see you. Nice to virtually see you. How are you virtually doing? All right, mate. Yeah, you know, we live in a box on a computer screen, um, which is all right, isn't it? There are worse places to be living. Is that a happy place for you to be living, a box on a computer screen? Does it have its advantages as well as its disadvantages? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I think we've all been doing a lot of stock-taking in the last year, haven't we, in amongst just the sort of basic fights for survival in our varying different ways. Um, But there's something 
very interesting as, as somebody who has done a job that has always involved having to physically be in the same room as the things that you're making and has also necessarily involved a lot of running around all over the place being forced to live in one room and communicate with everything through a box there are there are definitely like social and artistic possibilities that have opened up through that I think which is exciting and a different different way of thinking when you're moved away from that freneticism maybe yeah I think so. a kind of stillness perhaps yeah and uh, I mean on a very life level a, a sense of rootedness in a place that I haven't really had for I think for most of my adult life um having you know I think I lived in 15 different houses in 10 years when I lived in London I've technically lived in Salford for five years but I uh spent at least three or four of those years away so much that I was subletting to other places to live in so actually living inside my own flat for a year and walking around the streets of the immediate area in which I live has been properly nice I don't know if you've heard any of the podcasts that we've done in the past at the Royal Court, but um, I always used to start the podcast with exactly the same question. Uh, and I've decided for this kind of special uh, Stuttmark kind of like five, five, five episodes to start with exactly the same question, which, <laughs> um, which, uh, which is when was the first time that you ever went to the theatre, Jude? Good question. I remember going to see, I think it was Philip Schofield in Joseph and his Technical A Dream Coat. I'm going to say that I was four. The main reason I'm going to say that is basically there's a giant camel. There was like a, a big 2D camel. And when it came on stage, I cried and hid under my chair. Um, and I remember this real feeling of injustice because my mum was basically like, get out from under your chair. And I was like, the camel is terrifying. Um, so I'm going to say that I was four because I think if I was any older than that, it'd be mildly humiliating. So yeah, four years old, Joseph, great. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sure there's something about two dimensional camels and Philip Schofield combined <laughs> having its own particular terror nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Where was that? Where was that? Where would you have seen that? I mean, I I must have seen it in Coventry. I think, like I, so I lived in Coventry till I was six, and I, yeah, I'm very, um, I'm, I've not got a great sort of memory and sense of geography generally, but I, I remember it was, it was quite a large venue. It had seats that felt comforting to hide underneath, and it was probably in Cobb <laughs> or thereabouts. Yeah. Was theatre a big thing for you when you were growing up? When you were at school, was was directing or acting or writing? Was that something that you did? Yeah, definitely. I think it, I didn't go to the theatre lots. I think um, apart from, you know, in, in the sort of continued vein of Joseph, I remember going to see Cats maybe at some point on like a big trip to London or something. Um, but I would say that my main experiences of something approaching theatre as I was growing up were dramas in church, the Mersley Village show, uh, which is a phenomenon all of its own, where basically in the village that we moved to when I was six years old, once a year there would be a show um, that was sort of like a sketch show. People would, you know, like unironically sing songs about from the Wurzels and um, make jokes about the people from the next village being inbred uh, and that kind of thing. And, and me and my best mate would get up and like, so I did, I was in love with musicals. I was obviously determined to be in Les Mis uh, and me and my next door neighbour would like play songs on the piano together. So I really remember in one of these village shows, the two of us like demanding that we were given five minutes to perform the entirety of the Elephant Love Medley from Moulin Rouge, which we just sort of, sang together and everyone sort of like tolerated it um I think uh, yeah I I knew that I was like destined to uh I, I knew that I was destined to be in musicals 
Uh, I used to make up <laughs> plays all the time. Uh, I used to make up stories. Um, but weirdly, I didn't really connect that in my head. I think then I, I also just didn't think I was very good at anything to do with theatre. And I, for secondary school, I went to an all-girls school and it really felt like one of those places where like, if you were good at acting, what it meant was like, you were probably blonde, definitely good at crying on cue and doing an American accent. Um, and I was like, I was someone who just like always got cast as the boy or the narrator. Um, and I, so I just sort of was like, okay, cool, this is my life. And then I had this really amazing drama teacher who was like, oh, I think you're actually quite good at this. Um, and I was like, cool, this, I, I don't normally get told that I'm good at things, good at things that are creative. Um, so I really kind of held it. Uh, and then it opened up this very strange vortex because I sort of, at this point I was like 14, 15, I went home and said to my mum, like, I'm going to do drama. And my parents were like, please don't just get a real job. So I sort of fought with them for like years and years. They obviously became very entrenched and they were like this growing terror that you might do theatre as a career is horrifying. I was like, I don't even know what theatre is, but now I want to do it. Um, and then I, I sort of compromised and I went to uni to study English. And in my head, I was like, I will somehow be in theatre. And I got there and I joined the Theatre Society and there were all these people suddenly who were like, I'm directing the play. And I didn't know what, and I was suddenly like, oh, there's, I didn't realise that there was a thing that you could do, which is what I've been doing in my head the whole time, where you can like read a play and and then you can actually be the person who's like, guys, I, I think here's some ways that we could take the play off the page and put it in real life. So that it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I, I realised that what I wanted to be was... Um, was a director at that point. I've now obviously, you know, weirdly come full circle and I've started writing and even being in things again. Um, I it's only a matter of time until you're in musical theatre again. I mean, I feel like <laughs> what the world deserves, yeah. <laughs> where, where, where was the village you grew up, you, you went to for your adolescent years? Uh, Mersley, did Mersley you say? Mersley rhymes with, you know, Dursley. Um, it's right. <laughs> that other well-known place. Um, yeah. It's outside Milton Keynes. So for people listening in Germany... It's an hour north of London, the... and, and depending on how much you want people to feel sorry for you, you either say it's it's just outside Milton Keynes, the most nothing place on the planet, or it's in the northern home counties and it's a rural village, in which case you're suddenly incredibly posh. <laughs> Did you enjoy that the rural element of, of, of that life, having been born in Coventry? Do you remember it being different? Uh, yeah, I remember Coventry is, um, I mean, I'm back here at the moment. I'm weirdly this week, I'm doing um, some workshopping on Nanjing in Coventry. Um, I remember Coventry being pretty grey. I think that's also to do with where we lived. Like my main recollection is uh, once once every so often as a treat, my mum really hated McDonald's, but she was quite into McDonald's breakfast. And we would go on like a family trip for a McDonald's breakfast. And I really remember like walking over a dual carriageway to get there and it being this sort of like idyllic day out. Um <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, yeah, the ruralness of Mersley, it is it is beautiful. Like, you're surrounded by fields and sheep and all of those things. I think yeah. um, it's not particularly wild. Like, it's not like, for example, the Isle of Man, which we will talk about um, shortly. Yeah. It doesn't have that same sense of um, being breathtaking. But around, like, places like... Um, like Aylesbury Vale and stuff, you do, you drive and you're just like, the sun over the fields is completely gorgeous. Um, but I also, I lived there from the age of six to 18. So I have absolutely no desire to go and live in a small village again anytime soon. Yeah. Where did you go to university? Exeter. So I picked basically the the equivalent of a small village outside Milton Keynes to go to university in. Um, not to slag off Exeter, it was lovely, but I, I hadn't really thought about how far away from everything Devon was when I decided to go there. <laughs> and um did you did, did you start directing at university so it was in your early 20s so it was while you were an un undergraduate yeah 
what what um what do you remember kind of like particularly exciting kind of like discoveries as a student director you uh, people listening to this can't tell that you're chuckling at that idea but actually the work that we do at university is often really you know we don't realize it at the time but can be really key or transformative some of that stuff i think so yeah i think i still my my knowledge of theatre wasn't particularly broad and there's a there's a sort of weird thing that happened for me with theatre where I think there are certain elements of theatre that I really fell in love with at school and it took me a very long time to find those things in real life. So, for example, right. when I was in, I really remember in sixth form studying Waiting for Godot and having this really brilliant drama teacher who was like, who just, she just went, look, the way that Waiting for Godot functions as a play is um, when you're watching it, you are bored and angry and confused and everything feels meaningless. And then every so often you think that maybe you've understood it and then the rug gets pulled out from under you and it just becomes meaningless again. And sometimes that's quite funny and other times it's annoying and other times you're furious and blah, blah, blah. And she just went, and that's what it was like to be alive in World War II. And I just went, I was like... Or, or now. Exactly. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, oh, that's... I, I want to make theatre that does that. Like I want to make theatre that makes people be in something and that doesn't explain it to them, that just sort of like bees it at them. And I never, I didn't understand how to make that work. Definitely. I didn't really understand how to find it. And it wasn't, um, I guess there were sort of two things. It's quite a long time after I left uni. I went and saw a show by Complicite, which um, I think was sort of my first experience really of seeing something that wasn't a musical or linear naturalism. And Complicite, major international theatre company based in England, yeah. led by Simon McBurney, the artistic director. What was the show that you saw? I saw a disappearing number. And I, my sense is there's a thing with Complicite where the first Complicite show that you see, I think for people who felt like that was a transformative thing, they're always like, oh, that's the one. And everything that came after it is like not as interesting. And I think there's just a generational thing whereby whichever one's your first one is the one that you're like, that's, that's the one. Um, but I would say what I made at uni was um, pretty, like I, I made theatre in the way that I had understood what theatre was, which was linear naturalism. The first... Um, I directed two shows actually in quite quick succession because two things happened. I directed a production of The House of Bernardo Alba, um, which uh, was a brilliant learning curve. It was essentially just me being terrified by lots of drama students because I was an English student. I was with all the drama students who were like, oh, well, why aren't we rehearsing? And I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's just like, can we just talk about the play? And they would ask me like, to do all these exercises. And I was like, but, but what? Like, I don't. I've definitely worked with professional theatre directors in English theatre who've directed in a very similar way. Well, I won't I, mention any of their names. Something, there was something sort of beautifully demystifying about it because I sort of sat them down. I was like, look, okay, I, fine, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. What do you want? And they were like, well, we want to like, why don't you just like ask us questions about the character? And I was like, oh, what, GCSE drama hot seat? And fine, like you should have said. I just, I'm sorry, I assumed there was something mystical here. Um, and then the other thing that I directed uh, very soon after, my mate and I from home, so back in Milton Keynes or Aylesbury where we went to school, he was like, you like theatre, I like theatre, there's not much going on here, is there? Let's set up a theatre company. And so we uh, set up a theatre company in our summer holiday in my old school hall got some money off the local council and we staged a full-length production of the musical City of Angels uh, with a company of 50 16 to 21 year olds all of whom had never made theatre before I directed it obviously like having directed like literally nothing uh, we put it on in 10 days <laughs> we did three performances I had a proper baptism of fire uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was it was great. And I think from that point, I I went. I like this, and I would like to get good at this. Um, the next thing I did was I I decided to go to drama school. I think because I had been quite scarred by my experience with the drama students. I was like, I don't know this, and apparently, <laughs> clearly, apparently, it's like a thing that you have to like know things in order to do. Um, but I think probably there was a bit of a formative point. I kept sort of trying to describe to people the kind of theatre I was looking for. Uh, and the more that I, even when I was at drama school, I would sort of be saying, I think I want like a longer rehearsal process. I think I want to not just put the stage directions on stage. I think I'd like to be able to um, rip a play apart or get under its skin, not just for the sake of it, but to, to create something that feels like a new act of creation um, in a more radical way, maybe than some of the things I've already seen. And so essentially people kept saying to me like, they'd either go, oh, you'd really like German theatre, or they'd be like, oh, you'd really like German theatre. And so I'd like, there's a sign here. So then I went and lived in Berlin for a bit, and I think that's, I got in slightly more of a, I'm not, I wouldn't particularly characterise my work as being German in whatever the hell way that means. Um, I think that I um, I still sit very much in, in the tradition in which I was raised, but that was definitely a useful turning point in terms of going, Cool. Some of the some of the questions that I have about the more formally traditional work I have grown up in have been answered by seeing a, a very different national approach to theatre making. When when I first went to the uh, Theatre Treffen and to the Stuckmark around the Theatre Treffen in two thousand and eight, and nobody in British theatre had the slightest idea what it was. By the time I was going there in 2012, 13, 14, you couldn't move for young British theatre directors. I'm sure you were probably one of them. Oh, I was a bit <laughs> uh, clueless in, um, in, so I went there in 2011, but I was right. very, like, I didn't, I think it's partly like abject terror and just sort of not really feeling like you understood anything. So I was, I knew I wasn't very capable of going over and being like, hello, I'd like to network and make some theatre but basically I lived there for like nearly a year I sort of like cleaned people's houses and was a babysitter and I'd like save up all my euros and like go and see some theatre but sort of just like a visitor the whole time um right. weirdly but then what happened was I came back and exactly as you're describing that boom had happened and people just kept saying oh June knows all about German theatre and I was like I mean <laughs> I hate that I've, I've seen some theatres in Germany it's good yeah sure give me a job it's great the, so the, the last um 10 years from your return in 2012 from, from Berlin um, to the start of the pandemic has seen you really establish yourself, as I said in the introduction, as, as, as a director of, of, of real significance. Um, the work that you've made in that time is the particular work as a director that you think crystallises the attempts that you've made to, to make theatre from a directorial point of view. I know I'm asking you to distill 10 years of work in one or maybe two shows, but before we talk about Nanjing, it would be interesting to get that sense. Um, what, uh, this is, I, I'm going to say a really annoying thing, which is like, I think that it's only the, it's only the collection of work and the ways in which they're quite different that I think... Yeah sort of represents directorial approach and I, I think that um, I, as I'm sure sort of come across in the way that I've described my career I don't think I was ever someone who had a, a real compelling sense of like who they were as an artist and even less than that a sense of like how to get a room full of other people on board with what that was and I think yeah. oddly the work that I make that feels like um, 
it pulls together the most strands of who I am as a person and by extension yeah. as an artist uh, is Panto because Panto, it lets you, I mean, Panto is one of the closest things that that, that sort of conventional British theatre has to German theatre in the sense that you, everyone's constantly like chatting away to the audience. You know, I mean, you stop halfway through act two, like have a bit of a game. Um, well, for listeners in Germany who really don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> So panto is a Christmas traditional form of theatre that's really central to the UK's sense of self. And when I've done these podcasts in the past and I ask people what's the first piece of theatre they've been to, it's almost invariably some form of panto. Uh, they take uh, stories from... What are the, what's the root of the stories? I guess there's um, English folk stories... Yeah. Um, uh, well, there's a and they turn them, is a, <laughs> <from> <laughs> randomly yeah. crashing in there, um, and other tales from the Brothers Grimm as well. Um, uh, and they, but they they put them to music, often using contemporary pop songs. They're riddled with jokes which uh, children don't understand to be filthy, but their parents really enjoy because they're really filthy. There's audience interaction, and it's all celebratory and a build-up to Christmas. Yeah. And what is it that brings the best of you as an artist out in something like Dick Whittington and his cat? It's, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's multifaceted formally. Like, it's comedia, it's variety show, it's music hall, it's stand-up, it's shameless moralising, and it's a fabulous musical um, and I think that that interest in pulling different things from different places, there's also, I guess, having grown up in a, in a community and a, a, a sort of cultural landscape that was not particularly uh, theatre savvy literature. You know, I mean, like I didn't understand contemporary theatre. Like when I tried to go to school, sure. I had this interview where this person was like, I asked you to come in with a modern play and you brought in Accidental Death of an Anarchist because that was literally <laughs> the most modern thing I'd ever read. Um, so yeah. I, I did quite a lot of catching up and I think I was aware of going, I really want to make theatre for like me as a 15 year old or all of my friends still now right. from that place. Um, which is not to say that um, other more more complex and formally challenging forms of theatre can't be widely accessible. But I sort of almost wanted to do like subversion by stealth. And that is what Panto is built for. And I think that, for example, particularly at the moment when we're in a really, really complex place about ownership of tradition and stories and culture and space in this country, there's something really brilliant about being able to take, for example, uh, a story like Cinderella and just kind of stare down the barrel of the audience and be like this is about how when people love each other isn't that a beautiful thing and to cast more than just one heterosexual cisgender central yeah. white couple for example yeah um yeah and I I think it allows you like definitely you know it allows for a bit of a release valve in terms of talking about politics and, and the frustrations of it it allows space for catharsis like doing Dick Whittington last year at, at the National in the middle of um still all things coronavirus felt hugely sort of poignant but you dress it all up in glitter and songs and silliness um mm. And it feels like something which is also forcibly trying to talk to as diverse a room as possible, particularly in terms of age, actually. It's something that is trying to speak to five-year-olds and parents and grandparents and, you know, people who don't consider themselves part of a family and come along with friends and all of these different things. Um, yeah. It's joyous. That's a really beautiful description of its glory, I think. The... Um... 
having established this position, I remember when you first told me that you'd written a piece. And, I, you know, in, in UK theatre, I think to a degree that's different to Germany and certainly different to other European countries, the demarcations between who is a director, who is a writer, who is a dramaturg, who is an actor or performer, seem traditionally to be slightly clearer. So, you know, being a kind of like 40-year-old bloke, I just thought, you're a director. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Writing. <laughs> but um, but um, what what was... Tell me about the the the, start, the very first starting points of why you decided you wanted to write. And did, was, it, was it the impulse to write that came first or was it the discovery? Of- I mean, I like words. I really like what mm. you can do with them. I also really like the sound of my own voice. I've been told this my entire life. Um, and I, you know, I made my fingers for that. It's like, cool, just tell me to shut up if you're bored. Um, I used to I used to write stories as a kid um, a lot. Right. And I think it was partly exactly the thing that you've described in British theatre. I, I really remember having quite a few conversations with people who were like, pick one. Like, I need to know what pigeonhole you're in or concentrate on something. Um, and and I think I I was really in love with directing there's a couple of things. So firstly, it took me quite a long time to understand the different ways in which you can be a director. And as I say, I think this is incredibly reductive, but I think there is one approach to directing that is more considering yourself an interpreter of a writer's text um, and somebody whose whose job it is to render that text in, in artistic collaboration with the team, but really, really in service of that pre-existing authorial voice or even that existing authorial voice in the room. And I still love working on projects like that. I still love working with writers where I'm like, tell me what you want this baby to be in the room. And then the creative force for me is us figuring out how to do that perfectly. I also, I think particularly, for example, um, through my relationship with Vicky at the Royal Court, um, Vicky Featherston, the artistic director. I think yeah. that her instincts for the kinds of um, writers that I'd be excited by and the kinds of plays that I'd be excited by, and actually Sarah Frankham at the Royal Exchange, I think, had the same thing. I found myself um, being paired with writers or with plays that really asked for a little bit more creation. Uh, right. So, for example, just plays which would like have stage directions that were impossible. And so you were like, great, instantly right. there's an ask here of how we do this. Or... Um, Cordelia Lynn's play, Layla and Co, which was the first show I directed at the Royal Court, although Cordelia has an incredibly clear sense of what her text is and what her play is, it was a play that felt like it was asking for um, an act of invention about the way that the audience were taken through that show that wasn't outlined on the page. And so I think... There was that level of impulse and and I guess a little bit of a sense of going, I, I'm also starting to learn that I work badly with writers when I'm trying to follow that impulse and sort of like trying to steer or steal the limelight or whatever. Um, whereas, you know, sometimes I think you can have a really, really happy, really fizzy collaboration like that. I, I then started writing. I think Simon, the first time I told you I'd written a play, actually I was doing this job that was nothing to do with theatre. I just needed to pay my rent. And I was working for three months doing customer service training workshops for VW commercial vehicles. And I stayed in identical premier inns all over like the north of England and Northern Ireland for months and months going around all these van centres, like trying to teach people to like communicate and give their customers <laughs> and stuff. And it was soul destroying. It was horrible. And I would come home every night and I just woke up in the night and started writing and writing plays. And I wrote a play which um, still hasn't gone on anywhere, partly because I, every time I spoke to people about it, I was like, 
how I don't really know how to finish it and what it is anymore. But I uh, I distinctly remember emailing you and a couple of other people, probably drunk, probably in the middle of the night, being like, I've written a play. Uh, is it uh, really sort of like that real terror, particularly being yeah. a director who works with new writing, um, <laughs> of, of like putting things in front of people and being like, so if it's rubbish, please don't let me like, stop letting me be a director. So Nanjing was a slightly different one. I think when I... Did we talk about that play? Did we meet and yeah. talk about that play? And it's really beautiful, kind of like slightly quite... I remember being surprised that it was quite a romantic play in my memory. Yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was quite hopeful about the relationship, yeah. It was a really tender play. I remember being... Um, and, and beautifully written. Okay. I remember uh, I, I remember the, the clarity and, and, and nuance of that writing. I'd forgotten that I should have I should have led the introduction with that. <laughs> yeah. And if anyone wants the script, uh, yeah, it's it's right for production. It's a two-hander, isn't it? It's a, two-hander. Uh, it's, it's a four-hander. Questionable as to whether the fourth character is currently really earning her place in the script. So okay. Come on. But Nanjing didn't start in the throes of premiere and misery as you tried to persuade. No. No, I mean Nanjing started that year that I was living in Berlin, and I was reading yeah. a lot. I would, I had this quite a nice routine, just you know, I was unemployed apart from like being a sort of live out au pair for various um, German people, and I, um, I was, I was reading obsessively. I think once I fell down a kind of internet click hole and started learning about specifically the rape of Nanking, but then just you know, it's one of those things that just spirals and spirals and spirals. It became this kind of obsessive research project, and so I think. Firstly, obviously, my brain instantly went, I should turn this into a play. That's the only thing I know what to do. Um, and also, I was saying to someone earlier, like, I think that the point at which I knew I had to make a play out of it was like, it's either this or just continue to corner people in the pub forever. And like, and surely the more efficient way, rather than just constantly being like, oh my God, have you heard of this thing? It's called The Rape of Man King. Okay, so 1937, and it was like, please, Jude, it's a birthday party. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, so I was For like, maybe, maybe I'll um, maybe I'll at least give people some degree of choice over yeah. whether they're going to listen to this material. And then I obviously assumed that I would have to get a, an actual playwright to write it. And I think probably quite fortunately, there were very very few, um, particularly at that time, British Chinese or of any sort of East Asian heritage playwrights. Which is you know lucky for me because I think if those if those people had had more prominence and if I'd had a wider contacts network I probably would have asked someone else to write it for me out of sheer terror and then I probably would have been really annoyed that they hadn't had the writerly skill to just write exactly what was in my brain for me Mm. um so I I started writing it and I I mean again similarly I guess to the premiere relay I started just waking up in the night and writing bits of it um I also distilled quite a few sections of it just as a, a shorter way of trying to explain to people where I was coming from or where the history had come from and how it all fitted together. And then through a a sort of um, a little bit of funding and development and some really, really brilliant people working on the material with me and then sort of giving me a kick up the arse to do it myself. I got to a point where I I think the other turning point was that I just went, I don't, it feels like an essay and I'm just going to start and go with it because I don't understand at this point how else to tell this story. And then the second thing was, I think I'd figured out quite quickly that if I was going to write it in the way I was writing it, I'd have to perform it myself because I was literally just going, hello, I'm Jude. I'm from these places and I think these things. 
But I, I suddenly then started thinking about workshop facilitation, which is something that I also had done from right at the beginning of my career. I worked a lot, particularly with young people um, and with groups who um, were in various ways marginalised or vulnerable, particularly. And so I was like, actually, I'm not an actor and I'm not really a writer. But one thing I am quite good at doing is figuring out how to structure an hour in the company of quite a large group of complete strangers that will take them on a journey from A to B to C to D and will give space for them to be themselves in that, but ultimately will take a bit of responsibility for the curation of that time in every, you know, in every way. Um, and I wrote the play really on those terms. I was like, what I want to try and do is figure out a way to take an audience on the journey that I had. So, in, so that's why it's got quite a lot of prologues because I was like, I kind of need to explain to you all the, all, all the who I was and then go bang okay it's 2011 you're sitting at your laptop and you click on this wikipedia article that's called the rape of nanking and you receive all of that information which you prior had no knowledge of um and then to sort of try and take people i guess on through the stages that i went through of sort of going shock and outrage and embarrassment at not having known these things and this sort of scramble for more information and lighting on particular stories that either resonated in relation to the world that I was living in in a very loud way or that felt particularly shocking even on top of the, the information that I had discovered and also asking really big questions about how this recalibrated the world for somebody who I guess had always sort of lazily been like yeah I'm a pacifist like why would you have a war um, I found it really challenged a lot of those beliefs and even since writing the play we wrote an early version of the play in 2016, in the summer of 2016. And after that, Brexit happened and Trump happened. And having written this whole creed that was like, you know, do I, I'm pacifist, whatever, I'm a militant pacifist, like you can do anything and I will never, ever hurt you. I was like that, by that winter, I was like, do we go out and punch fascists? I'd like, is everything in the play wrong? Um, right. And it's been very strange to keep coming back to it Um it's been very, very weird, actually. We sort of we made what we what we thought of as like the first real full version of it in 2018 at the Globe, and particularly with the hiatus of the last year, trying to hold it as a living document of a play and without it feeling disconnected from itself, while the world continues to change in this incredibly rapid and complex way, has been exciting but really really exhausting and hard as well have you, have you um uh i want to ask you about that i want to go back to what you dismissed as the prologues because the piece starts with something i wouldn't describe necessarily as prologues and i don't want to do spoilers for people who i hope will be able in some way to watch the performance of of of, of, of nanjing as part of the Stuttgart. um but you root this discovery of this moment from this of this atrocity in history in your own exploration of your own ancestry, which is something that I, I found much more beautiful than just a prologue. And, and it made me wonder, did you was your how did the discovery of Nanjing make you reappraise your heritage from the Isle of Man, for example, or your heritage from China? Um, there's the beautiful uh, joke, again, I, I won't do spoilers, but are you Malaysian or are you Chinese? People coming to the show can, or watching the show, hopefully coming to the show in the future, because you're going to be doing this for the next 50 years, right, Jude? This is going to be like seawall. You're just going to keep doing it. 
I mean, but it gets very depressing because there's one point in it where I talk about my age and having to constantly change that is really depressing. <laughs> but um, what came first, your consideration of your uh, heritage or your discovery of that atrocity? Um, I think I'm someone who's always been a bit curious about their families. Um, my family have always been quite remote from me. So it's not that... Um, I grew up with both of my parents in the same house as me. And so it's not like I didn't have that access to history, but my, my gran and grandpa, so my, um, it's not British, like my Manx and English grandparents, uh, they, they basically lived on the Isle of Man for as long as I can remember. Like I think they're still in England, maybe when I was born, but my entire memory. And the Isle of Man for, for people in Germany don't know the Isle of Man is a, is an is an island in the North Sea between the coast of England and the east of Ireland. Sorry, frequently confused with the Isle of Wight, but very very different geographically <laughs> and in every other way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they they were over the sea, and we would maybe see them once a year if that. And then my mum's parents lived in Malaysia for my entire life, so I saw them probably you know in, on five in five distinct periods ever. Um, I also don't I don't speak. Chinese any form of Chinese it was it was incredibly complicated as to which forms of Chinese my mum could have taught us and then she, she I think she just went oh it's too complicated and didn't teach us any so my only access to talk to them was also you know given what international phone charges used to be it was basically like through my mum on the very few occasions that we were all in the same country as each other so I uh I didn't get very much information definitely this is something that's in the play is you know my my mum never spoke to me about stuff around Nanjing and, and around um, the Japanese occupation of Penang because specifically because her parents didn't speak to her about it. Um, mm -hmm. I think when it comes to family history, I was sort of my my granddad in the Isle of Man was like, in contrast to my mama and Gong Gong, which is my Malaysian grandparents, my grandpa was a brilliant storyteller, like incredibly chatty, like really really good tales and I think I was probably a bit churlish about it as a kid partly because he definitely was one of those people where you're like okay so tell us about the ancestors and he's like okay so in 1605 um like, <laughs> you, just, you just give up it's it's that and also it's um it, it just the, the complexity of who's related to who and um I, I think I just sort of went whatever and it was only um it, you know, it was only towards the time he he died in um, a couple of years after I started writing my first version of the play. And um, I really remember this sudden moment of like wanting to run over to the Isle of Man with a tape recorder and just like get mm. all of these stories out of his brain and these anecdotes. Um, but yeah, I think my definitely my desperation to, to learn more specifically about um, about Penang and about that period of history grew hugely. Uh, after I started um, researching the subject with my uh, my my mum and Gong Gong, I didn't get that chance to have that conversation with them. I think there was a very brief window when I could have done, but they actually died quite soon after I came back from Germany. Um, and I think also they just wouldn't. I mean, I'm like, if they wanted to talk about it, they would have done, you know. So I think um, it it's been weird because I've been trying to piece that together through strangers because I, as soon as I found out, it's kind of too late to get it from my own family. Um, but I think that's okay. I think it would have given me a very, it would have given me a very strange insight, a very different insight into who they were, but it sounds like it's something that they didn't want to give. So. One of the things that I really love about the piece uh, maybe comes from that impossibility 
because and and for me, what makes it resonate in a very broad political way and makes it feel as though it's been about the last ten years, is the the question at the heart of it seems to be, well, who the fuck am I? <laughs> if that's true, then who the fuck am I? Yeah. Um, and and that's kind of like felt like the question a lot of people were asking after Brexit, after the Brexit vote in the UK, who are we? Yeah. And even after the election of Trump, uh, even though, though that was something that ostensibly was in the US, that question seemed to resonate throughout the world. Yeah. Um, the question of the last year, I guess, is maybe a slightly different question, which might be, how do we survive this? Or, or you know, it feels in some ways that the, the, the pandemic has allowed us to be more meditative and more collaborative. And we've gone back to our communities, as you say, mm -hmm. gone back to Salford. Has that percolated through into the draft that you're going to be working uh, in uh, in the Stuttmark? Or have you changed the text is the simpler question. Have you changed any words, Jude? Always <laughs> <laughs> changing little words. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, in answer to the sort of first part of your question yes i one of the things that i hadn't realized until we did a version of the play at the yard people was asking people were asking me what it was about and i kept being like oh it's about pacifism and it's about um the rape of nanking and all these things and mm. i there was one it's on the on the last night that we performed it this woman came up to me and she was like hi i'm here with my daughter who saw the show two days ago and has brought me back to watch it today because she's mixed race and she's never seen anyone make work talking about being of multiple heritages before. And and so this this poor woman, this poor young woman was like sitting in the corner being like, Mum, stop talking to the woman who made the play. <laughs> but like, it, I suddenly went, oh, yes, play about being mixed race. And Elise, who directs the show, who I'd asked to make it with me for many, many, many reasons, I hadn't really thought about it, but instantly it made sense that one of the, the ways in which we connected over the many years that we'd worked together prior to that was being people who slightly had a foot in and a foot out of this country, out of the idea of white Britishness. Um, and I think that, so I think you're right. I think the conversation in this year has has shifted on a, a kind of national level, but I think one of the things I discovered that the play helped me unlock about my own life and a lot of the connections that I was making was in the first instance going, oh, there's a mixed race kids superpower thing at play here where those of us who have constantly had to figure out all the different bits of ourselves are maybe better placed than other people to weather the current constant um, uncertainty about suddenly discovering that we're not who we thought we were, suddenly discovering that things that we've always thought about the world have actually always been incredibly damaging and problematic in relation to other people or discovering that heritages which we've held up as being this sort of bastion of nobility are actually you know dripping in blood all of these different issues that people feel like they're getting blindsided by more than ever today there was sort of something about going I'm, I'm not saying this is only exclusive to people who, or, or in fact that it's the rule for everyone who's of mixed heritage but you just went oh I, I've done I've done versions of this already like I've done oh, I feel confused and I don't quite know what to believe anymore. Or like different sides mm. of my family think really, really different things about each other and there are no absolutes and, and nothing is binary. Um, and so I think in terms of how the play lands today, there's a very, very specific thing about the play um, where part of its mission statement was always to change the understanding that British people had of modern China, because my assessment, which has been borne out from performing the play again and again and again, is that it's not just that I was really stupid as a 24 year old, like most people I've spoken to, including British Chinese people who were raised in Britain, 
didn't know about the rape of Nanking or knew very little about it. I, I, you know, I think it's a generational thing. I think an older generation will tend to know something. Um, but I've spoken to a surprisingly high proportion of people who were like, I literally had no idea, like no idea at all. Um, and so for a while it became about going everyone kind of baseline in this country just thinks of China as being like this bastion of like baddie basically and and of being victors and of being dominators and to say to people within living memory within the lifetime that we all consider to be recent history this is what happened in China felt like quite a revelatory thing to do and in terms of I guess anti-racism discussions felt like a really vital thing to do coronavirus has changed that massively. It's made that mission feel very complex. Uh, the current things that are being done by the Chinese government within their own borders uh, also make that feel incredibly complex. And so I think that rewriting the play now, we're doing a bit of rewriting. Um, the thing I've become really keenly aware of is particularly actually because it, although it's happening as part of theatre treff and it's going to happen in a digital realm, we're going to make a specific version of the show, which is the theatre production, but made in the knowledge that there is no audience but a camera. Um, it, it suddenly feels like talking to an international audience, but more than ever, I'm like, I sort of need to have an, an inner conversation. It links actually to Tania's play Dreams in Black Major. I was like, I kind of need to have a different conversation with mainland Chinese people, with British Chinese people, and with anyone who is not remotely Chinese in this particular Mm. moment in history in relation to the events of this play. And in trying to figure out how we hold that conversation and how we have it, what we've sort of landed on is in, in relation to that question of who are we, is trying to offer some kind of, um, I can only speak from my own experience, but I think that maybe we'll never quite know who we are, I think it's okay to want to keep discovering and being surprised and sometimes horrified and sometimes overjoyed by discovering new facets of ourselves. And that might mean my own life history, the the country, my ancestors. It might also just mean a resonance that I have with somebody else whose life looks nothing like mine. I, I think there's something about going, it's really okay to be multifaceted and there is a joy in the possibility that that opens up and the possibility of collect- connection that that opens up between all of us that maybe counterbalances one of the things that feels like it's happening today, which was that we're constantly discovering more and more ways in which we're all so horrific to each other that maybe we can't coexist on the same planet. <laughs> it's that I think there's something really beautiful and profound about that and the idea that maybe there is no unifying identity there is no unifying for anybody and that if we if we hold on to these notions that we do have a concrete objective newtonian self eventually we're just going to we're just going to discover something that contradicts that and i think that's what your play does really beautifully are you going to write some more are you still writing are you writing something new or is uh, or is that an old fashioned question for <laughs> Well, I'm, write, I'm writing quite a lot of things, and it, I think one of the things that's exciting, um, there's a sort of formal possibility that it feels like it was opened up by sort of not really writing a proper play, and then lots of people liking right. it. So uh, quite recently, I got a, a small commission from Chinese Arts Now, who are amazing, mm-hmm. and they created a festival called Stay Connected as part of their, their festival this year, um, where they 
they gave a chunk of money to all of the artists that they've worked with recently and said, just make something, whatever you want that stays connected to the rest of the community. Um, mm-hmm. And so some people have done talks and presentations of work. And I, in, in one of those moments where you're like, I'll just say this and then figure it out. I went, I think I want to make a manual about how to grieve um, because I'm- <laughs> I mean, it feels like quite a useful thing right now. Um, so I did that, which um, it was luckily it was quite a small commission. So as in, like it was, it wasn't intended to take up a lot of time. So I was like, great. I, if I overthought this, it would be impossible. But what I'm going to try and do is just spend a couple, you know, a bit of time thinking about some things that I would like to say about the process of grieving that I think might be helpful to other people. And what that is in its entirety is um, a series of photographs of post-it notes that I wrote things on and stuck in a notebook and that's it and I'm like I don't need it to be anything I'm not like and here's my pitch for the Broadway show so it's been quite liberating in that sense to go I made that I've written that that's a thing and now I'll write some other things I yeah I'm quite also a year in which it's not physically possible to direct anything um is secretly quite a nice thing It, it helps I think when you're caught between the reality of going practically the majority of the work that people pay me to go and do that allows me to you know live my life in a capitalist society is still under the banner of directing and increasingly you know directing in mid-scale subsidized theatres directing a particular kind of work for a particular expectation Mm. of audiences within quite a constrained process um not being able to do that and and the act of writing I think I found much more liberating than that and it's also uh, because my my nature, I think, is to be quite collaborative in that it's opened up so much lovely space to work with other artists, to co-write with other people, or to to write mm. in conversation with other people. I, I I think you write with great grace and great humanity and great poise. It's a real privilege to have watched the film I watched of Nanjing, uh, and I can't wait to see it. Uh, live in a theoretical future that I'm sure will definitely happen. And uh, I hope you have a great time with the, with the version of it for the Stuckmark. Uh, Jude Christian, thank you very, very much indeed. Cheers, my love. It's very nice to see you. You've been listening to a special episode of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt 2020-21 at the Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. It was produced by Emily Legg and Anushka Warden for the Royal Court Theatre. All five of the pieces talked about on this series, the five shows selected by the jurors of this year's Stuckermarkt, are available online at the Theatre Treffen website from the 18th of May 2021. There's a link for the website on the show notes. The music for this series was by and given with permission from the brilliant Derek. Derek.